Exodus 2 to 20. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of an end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will not they wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds up who builds his realm, his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have blotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire and the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning everyone. Very good to see you and be with you this morning. I'm wondering what else can go wrong now. We've had um, broken guitar strings, failed attempts to get up on the stage. As soon as everyone saw that, did they want to run up and see if they could do it? Um, Do you mind if we open up those doors as far as we can? Let me pray and we'll get into the uh, the reading that Martin just brought to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for the the opportunity this morning to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ and to sit under your word. Uh, But the the reading that we just heard may be strange to our ears today. 
Uh, and it may be quite confronting in some of the things that it says. And so we pray now that as we spend some, some time in quiet, reflecting on the truth of it, seeing what it says to us uh, so many years later in a very different circumstance, we ask that your spirit would work within each of us, working within our hearts and minds, uh, changing our lives so that we may live in the light of what you say. And we ask these things, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. See if you agree with this. Uh, Uncertainty is uh, a significant part of what makes life in this world so difficult. Uncertainty. On the 6th of October 2007, I sat down to watch a rugby match with our family and I was certain of the result. After all, it was against France and France had already lost to Argentina in this uh, tournament and so the All Blacks were going to win another match, uh, proceed to the business end of the tournament. It was a sure thing. And uh, as the game continued and our family watched it, I remember Jamie getting more and more agitated and worried and I kept saying, Jamie, don't worry about it. There's no way in the world we're losing to France in this game. In fact, I didn't just say it once, I said that repeatedly and I said it with more and more scorn in my voice. Uh, It didn't turn out well. As you know, at the conclusion of the match, the All Blacks were out of the World Cup and my personal credibility took a significant hit. My words on that day, you might say why I've remembered that, my words on that day are repeated to me a couple of times a year by Jamie when she's reminding me that nothing in life is certain. Actually, she's normally reminding me I can't always be trusted, but I like to think of it as nothing in life is certain. But that's a really insignificant example of the difficulties of the uncertainty of life. There are far more significant uncertainties that cause you and I difficulties as we live our daily lives. The relationships, the loving, strong relationships we always thought would be the way they are that change, either through death or through betrayal or through drifting. We thought those relationships would always be there and we could depend upon them, but they change. Plans for the future have to change as our health changes. The youth and vigour and energy that we've always had, we can't be certain of that and it changes down through the ages. Uh, events or outcomes or positions that we thought were inevitable suddenly turn out to be very evitable. I don't think that's a word, but you know, we can't be sure of it, we can't be certain of it. Uncertainty is hard to deal with. And part of the reason it's so hard to deal with is it means things are out of control. The things we thought we could bank on, thought we could hold on to, we no longer can. If you're sure of something, you can hold on to it. Uncertainty leaves you with the possibility of just spinning out of control. Think of someone having a a kind of serious health issue and the doctors don't know what it is. That's an awful situation to be in. Once you know what it is, even if that is difficult, there's a a comfort that the confidence brings, that that knowledge brings. But there's so little certainty in this ever-changing world. Well, today as we continue looking at the book of uh, Habakkuk, we were in it last week, we're in it again next week, we're doing a three-week series. As we continue looking at the book of Habakkuk, we're going to see something that we can be absolutely certain of. One thing in this ever-changing world we can be assured of and hold on to. And I want us to see the difference that that should make in the way that you and I live today. One thing we can be certain of. And, um, and it makes a difference to our lives today. That's been one of the great things looking at Habakkuk. I hope if you were with us last week, you felt this. Although this book was written a long time ago, in circumstances and a situation very different from our own, we saw last week the principles we see from this odd little book 
uh, are so relevant and speak so powerfully into our lives today. If you weren't with us last week, uh, let me catch you up briefly. This book of Habakkuk that we're looking at is in the Old Testament, so it means it's before Jesus, and Habakkuk is the central character. He's a prophet. Uh, In other words, he's one of the guys that God used to speak his truth to people. And Habakkuk was living at a time when the people of God, he lived amongst the community of God. He lived amongst the people of uh, Judea. Uh, He lived amongst them, but they were turning from God. They were beginning to live like the world around them, following the creation instead of the creator, living the ways that everyone else does instead of the ways he'd told them. And Habakkuk was distressed by the evil that he saw as he looked around him. And so in this book of Habakkuk, what goes on is you find Habakkuk and God having a conversation. They're having a dialogue. Habakkuk keeps raising these things that he's worried about, these questions or concerns he's got, and then God answers them. And the book is three chapters, and we're doing it in three weeks. And so last week we looked at chapter one, and it was mainly on doubting. This week is chapter two, and we're looking mainly at waiting. And then next week is chapter three, and we're looking mainly at trusting. And in chapter 1, if you weren't with us last week, Habakkuk was saying to God, crying out to God, if you like, why aren't you doing anything about the evil that surrounds me? How long are you going to let this continue? And we noticed that the burning issue for Habakkuk was not just the evil that he saw, it was more than that. It was the thought that God wasn't doing anything about it. And it was causing him to have significant doubts about God. And as soon as we saw that, we thought, well, that's exactly the same boat that you and I found ourselves in today. If we see things going wrong in this world, either we're suffering or we see the suffering of others, and God seeming to not do anything about it, we suddenly go, well, well, who are you, God? Why aren't you doing something? If we think that God is good and powerful and he doesn't seem to be addressing these things, why is that? Are we wrong about God? Is he not good? Is he not powerful? That, kind of, that can be very unsettling and destabilising for us. But we saw that God answered Habakkuk when he, when he laid out this complaint, this question. And he told him, don't worry Habakkuk, I am going to do something about the evil of Judah. But... God then went on to say what he was going to do and that left Habakkuk spinning even more because God went on and said, I'm going to do something, I'm going to use Babylon. And Babylon was another nation in in the same kind of area. Babylon was the growing superpower of the area and God says he's going to use them to come on in and destroy the evil of Judah. Now that was totally not the answer that Habakkuk was expecting. And so Habakkuk, if you remember, questioned again. And basically Habakkuk said, well, why are you going to do that? How is it right to use uh, an even more evil nation to get rid of it, to sort out an evil nation? Again, do you see, he was thrown by God. That's what his problem was, his question was. And again, we can relate. We can understand. We don't always understand what God's doing. We don't always understand his timing. We don't always get the instruments that he uses or the, the, the way direction things are going. And some, so we're, we're often left with big doubts and big questions. And one of the encouraging things, and I hope if you were here last week you felt this, one of the encouraging things of last week was we saw that as Christians we're permitted to bring those questions and concerns to the Lord. He delights in us coming before him and saying, how long, O Lord, and us pouring out our hearts to him. We shouldn't feel like we've got to live a double life and keep a stiff upper lip. We we can pour out our hearts to God. Well, that's where we got to by the end of last week. And so this week we're looking at chapter 2, and so we're seeing God's response 
to Habakkuk's last question. And this week (coughs) is another hard one. Uh, I said uh, last week we're going to have to work hard, we're going to have to work hard again this morning. But I make no apologies for it, that's good. It's good to work hard on the scriptures, good to work hard uh, on the word of God. And I liked it that Lee did a... um, Uh, a notice before using the Star Wars music because I see Habakkuk chapter 2 as the Empire Strikes Back of Habakkuk. Uh, You know in the Star Wars trilogy there's the Empire Strikes... in the original trilogy, the only true trilogy of Star Wars, there's the Empire Strikes Back which is the second movie. And although in lots of ways it's an excellent movie in and of itself, there's a sense that it doesn't stand alone like the other two does. You can watch Star Wars, A New Hope, and it's kind of complete. You can watch Return of the Jedi and it's kind of complete. But Empire Strikes Back is not like that. It builds on what's come before and it's not completed by the end. Remember, there's a big cliffhanger at the end. It's not completed because that's going to be wrapped up next week. That's a little bit like us this morning. And so if you feel like, yeah, but I need a bit more, come next week. That's when you'll get a little bit more. So today can be a little bit frustrating looking at this one. But remember, Empire Strikes Back still got Yoda, still got the true identity of Darth Vader. There's still important things in it, but it doesn't quite wrap up. That's what we're going to do uh, this morning. I also want to remind you what I said last week. Habakkuk's a hard book to read. And so if you, even as you were reading along this morning with Martin or you've looked at it in your own quiet times and you think, I, don't just, I just don't get it, there's nothing wrong with you. It's a hard book to read. Even within the Bible, it's not a normal book. It's one of the books of prophecy. And that's a different genre. It uses a different style and structure and it takes a bit of time to, 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 uh, to learn how to read it and understand it. So that's why we're spending time on doing it this morning. So I want to look at the chapter as a whole so you can get a feel for what's, uh, what's there and how it hangs together. And then I've got two points I want us to focus on and, and take to heart this morning. If you remember at the end of our section last week, we actually finished on at chapter 2 verse 1. The last verse in Habakkuk's question or complaint, he talked about being like a watchman in the tower waiting to see what God would say. Which is a great way to finish because although he's still unnerved by God, although he doesn't quite understand what God's doing, he's saying, my attitude is, I'm going to watch and see and wait to see what you say, Lord. So that's where it left it. So in chapter 2, verse 2, and Megan's going to try and keep up uh, with where I am as we go through it, we pick it up and now God speaks back to Habakkuk. And he basically sets up the rest of the chapter because he says, in effect, I'm not just going to tell you a couple of things, Habakkuk. You're my prophet. I'm going to give you a revelation. That's the word that's used a couple of times there. And I want this revelation written down so that people can understand it and so that it can be taken around so that other people can see it and understand it. Habakkuk's going to be the prophet that takes this revelation of God to his people. And um, uh, this is going to be the prophecy. And verse 3 is really the key verse for us today. So we're going to come back and back to it because he says the revelation speaks of the end time, it's true, and he should wait for it. That's, That's going to be the theme that we keep kind of coming back to. But then God goes on to talk about a he in verse 4 that's not introduced. Who is the he? We see things about him. He's obviously proud and crooked and arrogant and greedy. But I think it's the words at the end of verse 5 that that make clear the identity of the he. It's Babylon because it describes the he as gathering to himself all the nations and taking all peoples captive. This is Babylon. Now you might say, well, why does it use singular he? It may be talking about the king of Babylon, but the the king of Babylon is the personification of all Babylon, the people uh, who are an enemy to God. And think about why this is happening this way. Remember, Habakkuk's problem is 
well, God, why are you going to use evil Babylon? Do you not know that they're evil to judge Judah? And God's saying, no, no, I know that Babylon's evil and I will put an end to that evil. That's what he's going to say in this prophecy. And so the rest of this chapter is made up of five woes, W-O-E, woe, uh, aimed at Babylon. Uh, Do you see the first woe in verse 6? And what God does in each of these woes is he says, here's an aspect of the evil of Babylon, and then he says that evil will come to an end. The next woe, uh, verse verse 9, another woe, Here's an aspect of the evil of Babylon, but that aspect of evil will come to an end. Then another woe in verse 12, then another woe in verse 15, and then another woe in verse 18 and 19 for the end. So there's five woes. That's how the chapter fits together. Now I said before, there's two things I want us to focus on uh, this morning, and the first one really comes from these five woes, and and the truth is this, that God will bring about an end to evil. God will bring about an end to evil. That's what Habakkuk's worried about. How long, O Lord? Why are you not doing anything about it? Well, God says here, I will bring an end to evil. God says, don't worry about it, Habakkuk. I've got this. Uh, You can see it by looking at the five woes. The, The five woes each start, as I said, with God commenting on a particular aspect of evil of Babylon and then going on to say it will be brought to an end. And as we look at the the aspects of the evil of Babylon, we will see the same evil carrying on today in our own hearts and in our own world. Look at the first woe, verse 6, and really what's behind it is greed. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. Here's the kind of greed that makes people justify anything for profit. Doesn't matter who's hurt, doesn't matter what's compromised, as long as I'm getting what I want. We see it today, don't we? People profiting from the misery of others. Money over morals, profit over principles. Our world is today is still full of this, this greed, greed evil. But God goes on to say this evil will end. Verse 7 and following says that as the Babylonians have plundered, they too will be plundered. The evil will be brought to an end. And this becomes the pattern of the five woes. Here's an aspect of evil, it will be brought to an end. The next woe is selfish security. After a safe place, but at the expense of others around. Have a look at verse 9. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. Do you see what they're doing? They're feathering their own nest, making themselves secure at the expense of other people. And again, think of the way this corruption carries on in our world today. Looking after number one, at the pain and the suffering of others. As long as I'm safe, as long as I'm secure. But, says God, evil won't stand. Verse 11, even the structure you've built for security will cry out against them. Next woe, violence, verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. You would have thought that building a city and establishing a town are good things, but not if it's based on violence. And again, I don't have to go into today the the domestic abuse, the child abuse, the wars and strife, the the way that violence uh, impacts our world today. Uh, The next woe really is, I think, debauchery. Verse 15 speaks of the drunkenness and the awful things that can be done when there's no self-control. And again, we live in a, a binge culture, uh, culture, binge drinking culture, don't we? And where so many stupid things are done in that way, and some of you even here today will still live with regret from things that have gone on in that kind of way. This is the debauchery that was the same in Babylon, it's the same today. And then the final woe, verses 18 onwards, is about idolatry. 
worshipping the creation, not the creator. And nearly everyone today, when you read the Old Testament idolatry, we kind of sit up a little bit straighter and we feel better about ourselves because there's the one I don't do. I've never made a wooden idol and kind of sat down and bowed to it. But that's not the heart of idolatry. The heart of idolatry is putting anything in life before God. As soon as you put something else before God in life, you're worshipping the creation instead of the creator. And so most of us here, I would imagine nearly all of us, have not built something with woodwork and bowed down and, and, and worshipped it in that way. But if we've put money before God or career before God or possessions or family or sex or self and identity, whatever it is, that's idolatry. That's us putting the creation before the creator. Well, God gives all these woes, but more than that, he says, they will all be dealt with. They will all be brought to an end by him. And what you find in the books of prophecy are the things that are true specifically for that time and that place and those people are also true generally for all the people of God. And that's that's where what God's saying here is so good for you and I because the promise that he makes to Habakkuk about the Babylonians here is also true for you and I and it's spelled out in the rest of the Bible that one day God will put an end to all evil. He will bring about an end to all injustice. And so if if you and I are facing injustice or hurt or evil at the moment, I want you to be totally encouraged. It will not carry on forever. What God says about the evil of the Babylonians here is a picture and symbol of what God promises he will do for all evil, for all his people. And we need to know that. We need to know it because when you and I cry out what Habakkuk cried out last week, When we cry out, how long, O Lord, will I be going through this? We need to know that the answer is not for always. When you and I cry out, uh, why are you not doing anything about this? We need to know I am going to do something about it. It's not forever. And it will end finally and evil and injustice will end perfectly. Justice will be done. This may be you now. I've got no idea what you may be going through now. You may be feeling at the hands of injustice or evil in a terrible way, it will not always be your experience. It will not always last. It will end and God will end it. If you ever worry that, and we all do, that God just doesn't seem to be interested in justice or evil because I'm suffering in this way and it's been going on for this, remember his promises. Justice will be served. It will be executed. Evil will be dealt with and got rid of. It's promised right through the scriptures. In fact, I'd encourage you, if you're ever tempted to think, well, God doesn't really care about injustice and evil, look at the cross. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And remember that as he hung there, there's no way you can accuse God of not caring about injustice. Remember everything that God's gone through to make sure that nothing's glossed over, nothing's just swept under the carpet, to make sure that justice is dealt with properly, finally, fully, and evil is ended. And of course the incredible news about the cross is it doesn't just show the justice of God because God could deal with the evil of the world by just zapping us all. The cross also shows the, the deep, powerful love of God who goes through all of this so that you and I don't have to. But reflect on the cross, then you're never going to accuse God of being indifferent or unjust in these kind of circumstances. And so do you see, here's a certainty. In a world full of doubt, in a world full of things we can't be sure of or hold on to, here is a certainty. Here's something we can hold on to. God will defeat evil. It will end. 
Like Judah could know that the Babylonians would come to an end, you and I can know that the totality of evil will one day conclude. And just like the patient who's been told what's wrong, uh, but then you can hold on to it, and it's not straight away good news, but you can hold on to it at least, that's the same for us. Once we know one day it's going to come to an end, we can hold on to that now in the midst of things. I've shared this before with people at St Stephen's, so forgive me if you've heard it, but Jamie, my wife, has got this ridiculous way of reading books and I've never understood it. What she does is, don't look at me as if I'm judging her, I am judging her and you'll judge her too when you hear this. What she does is, she reads the first one or two chapters, then goes to the end and reads the last chapter. Then, hang on, not normal, who said that? It's not normal, what is wrong with you people? Then, I could kind of understand it if it was just that. I used to read my textbooks at school like that. Um, if, you just, if it was about speed, but it's not. She then goes back to the beginning and reads the whole thing. And it's the most ridiculous way of reading a book I've ever understood. Not only does it spoil the end, but it robs the book of all the surprises. It takes the fun out of it. And I said, well, Jamie, why do you do this when you read books? And she says, it allows me to cope with the book. When I'm in the middle of the book uh, and the ups and the downs comes and the will they or won't they and the highs and the lows, I know how it ends so I can cope with it. That is so dumb. (laughs) So dumb. Until the day I realised that's how God's given us the Bible. That's exactly what God's given us in the scriptures. When he tells us the end so that we can cope with the now. Darn it, it's not dumb. He tells us how it ends. He lets us know in advance the end game and he does that so that we can cope with the ups and the downs and the will they or they won't they and the highs and the lows. He does it precisely so that you and I can draw confidence so that we've got this sure and certain hope that Christians have the privilege of. Evil will end. It will not always carry on. That's why verse 3, again, if we can have verse 3 up, our key verse, says that the revelation of God speaks of the end and it will not prove false. That means God's telling us about something at the end, but so that we can know the truth of it now. It won't always be this way. It will not always remain. Whatever you may be suffering from in terms of injustice or evil now or... um, or what you may be causing for others and not able to pull out of, it will not always be that way. Know that. So that's the first thing. God will bring about an end to evil ultimately. Second thing, last thing, with that in mind, the knowledge that God will bring about an end to evil one day, what should we do? We need to wait and live by faith. We need to wait and live by faith. Do you see what the rest of verse 3 says? Though it linger... That means God ending evil doesn't happen straight away. It lingers. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. What God tells Habakkuk and he tells all of his people is we need to wait. How do you feel about waiting? Hands up if you're a good waiter. Not a waiter, waiter. You know what I mean. I can tell you how I feel about waiting. Absolutely awful. I hate waiting. Waiting is a pain. What, what image comes to your mind when I speak about waiting? Uh, for some of you it could be long queues. For some of you sitting in a, uh, a certain room with lots of people reading magazines waiting. Uh, for some of you it could be that um, coloured circle of doom spinning on a computer screen and you're thinking will this ever end? 
Uh, For some of you, it would be sitting behind a wheel in a car thinking, am I even going to move again? The thing in common for all of them, of course, is we're not in control. We We can't make it hurry. We can't make it happen. We just wait. We're at the mercy of the light or the doctor or the internet. But I want to tell you today, waiting is a key part, a key part of the Christian life. And I think we've neglected it in lots of ways in the church today. You and I live in the age of faster, immediate, instant and the idea of waiting seems outdated and too hard and too frustrating. I get ticked off if my coffee that I've ordered takes more than a minute. I get ticked off if the, the clip that I've downloaded takes more than a few seconds to show on the screen. And these are just frivolous examples. I hate waiting. I think, I don't know what you, whether you agree with me on this, I think the further we go from a farming kind of culture or arable culture, the more we lose this. Because farming's got, as part of it, the need to wait for the seasons. You can't just plant something and it's there. You've got to wait for the days to turn and the leaves to fall and everything else to happen. Now, if we want a certain fruit that's not in season, we import it from the other side of the world. We don't wait. And so I want to say to you very strongly this morning, if you're anything like me when it comes to patience and waiting, if you don't hear anything else or take anything else away from this passage this morning, hear this. It is crucial for Christians to wait upon the Lord. Crucial. That's what Habakkuk's told here, verse 3. Wait for it. Listen to these. Now you might go, well, you've picked a you know, little phrase of three words from one chapter, Jay. Well, you could have picked any phrase. Let me, let me show you that this is the teaching of the entire scriptures. And I could have picked millions of these verses. Let me go through a couple of verses and I've got Megan to show them on the PowerPoint so that you can see them. Here's some from the Psalms. Psalm 20. And think of not just waiting, but the other things from Habakkuk themes which are picked up in these verses on waiting. Psalm 27.14. Is it up there? Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. The psalmist thinks it's so nice, he's got to say it twice. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 33 verse 20. We wait in hope for the Lord, he's our hope and our shield. Uh, Psalm 37 verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their evil ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Be still and wait patiently. What about Psalm 130, verses 5 to 6? I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Uh, That picks up the whole imagery of Habakkuk. He was the watchman out looking, but here it says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. God's giving Habakkuk the prophet, the, 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 the truth to his prophet and his prophet now has to wait in the knowledge of that truth. That's us. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion for the Lord is a God of justice but blessed are all who wait for him. Again, the idea of justice coming but the need to wait now. Lamentations 3, 24, 26. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion therefore I will wait for him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Romans 8, that great chapter of faith in the New Testament, says uh, in the middle of it, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, which is us, we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We could look at 1 Corinthians 4, we could look at Titus, we could go on and on. Waiting is time and time again in the scriptures to be a central part of the life of a Christian. Because waiting means... I trust you, Lord. 
It means being patient, being okay with us not being in control. It means being okay with trusting his timing and his way of doing things, his promises, his word. And so I want to ask you this morning, challenge you as I've been challenging myself, how do you go in this space? Do you wait upon the Lord? Now it's important to note that Christian waiting is not the same as everyday waiting. Where, we, where it's very passive and we do nothing. Uh, I asked you before to think of an image of what you think of when you think of waiting. Mine is waiting in a doctor's room. And uh, the image of waiting I've always got is waiting in a doctor's room, reading a magazine about the secret to Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt's wedding. <coughs> because they're always 10 years old, right, those magazines. And you're sitting there waiting for the appointed time, or more likely the delayed time. Christian waiting's not like that. Firstly, notice the way verse 3 makes absolutely clear there's no delay. For the revelation awaits the appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. I hope you're encouraged by those words. What they say is that unlike so much of my waiting where I think, oh no, there's a delay or something's gone wrong, I go worst case scenario, that's how my mind works. So the doctor's forgotten me, I've slipped off the list. Or the traffic lights are broken, I'm never going to move again. Or the computer's stalled, I'm going to have to kick it. Or whatever else. With God, it's never pointless. Do you see that from that verse? It's never a case of being forgotten or something's broken. His timing is appointed and without delay. It lingers, but it comes when it should. Hold on to that, friends, especially when you're finding God's timing difficult. We saw last week we don't always understand God's ways. That's true. But his timing is perfect in everything. There's no unforeseen circumstances causing a jam. There's no detail that slipped his mind with uh, unforeseen kind of consequences. His timing is clockwork. It is precision. Trust his timing. He knows what he's doing and why and when. And we wait. But the other way uh, our waiting isn't to be passive, like in a doctor's reading an old magazine, is waiting here doesn't mean not doing anything. It doesn't mean doing nothing. Verse 4 tells us what waiting as a Christian is. It's living by faith. In verse 4, do you remember, there's the contrast between the person of Babylon, who's living the life of pride, and the righteous person who lives by faith. How do you wait upon the Lord? You live by faith. What does that mean? You've got to, you've got to, I want you to understand this. Living by faith is waiting upon the Lord. Living by faith means trusting God and what he's promised you even more than what you see with your eyes or feel in your heart or hear with your ears or think in your mind. Isn't that hard? I want to say that again because that's living by faith for the Christian. It means trusting the promises of God more than what you see with your eyes or feel in your heart or think with your mind or hear in your ears. That is so hard to do. But God says that there is a reality more trustworthy than your senses. There's a reality more assured than my experiences. And it's the word of God, the promises of God. Live by that. Do you remember how uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 puts it? So we fix our eyes not on what's seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. That's living by faith, that's waiting upon the Lord. 
having confidence not in ourselves but in Jesus, trusting not my experiences and working things out but what God's promised me is sure and certain and will happen. I want to encourage and challenge each one of us today to wait upon the Lord, live by faith, trusting his promises more than anything else. That's so contrary to the world that you and I live in today. The spirit of our age is rush, instant, all about uh, instant gratification of senses, control. We're being challenged to wait, to trust. Not to do nothing, but to live by faith. His promises more than anything else to do with me. That's the best way to live. I will sometimes get so down because of what I feel or what I think or what I see or what I experience But the words and promises of God are more reliable and dependable. I wait upon that. I found this chapter very difficult. Patience is not a natural virtue of mine. Uh, I want it to be me driving things and I want things done now. But guess what? There's someone better qualified, more reliable, someone whose timing is precise and the outcome of what he's doing is assured. Wait on him. That's the way to do it. Patience. Forbear. Endure. Wait. Do you see how this builds on last week? As you and I, like Habakkuk, cry out to God, as we pour out our heart and our desperation, our worries, concerns, complaints, there's a sense that we then leave it at the foot of the cross and we wait upon the Lord. We trust him, living by faith. We wait. There's so much more I wish we could say, but remember this is the Empire Strikes Back of Habakkuk, so uh, come back next week. But I want to challenge us this morning in our waiting upon the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the answer that you gave Habakkuk, uh, an answer which I think blew his mind and uh, surprises us. But then as we sit and reflect upon it, we thank you for it. And I pray that in the certain things that you've given us, the truths that you've assured us of, you would help each one of us more and more to wait upon you, trusting you, trusting your timing, throwing ourselves upon your mercy. And I pray that you would help us with that because it's not our natural inclination and yet it's the best space to be. Father, help us wait upon you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.